You know, last week I took some time to share with you, we've been in a series on first, in 1 Corinthians, just talking about our mindset and our lifestyle as a follower of Jesus Christ. But last week, uh, I took some time just to pause that, and I talked with you on a message I called the value of slow, or slowing down. Really trying to disengage from this frantic pace of life that we live in, and slowing down and really learning to receive and recognize how God may want to speak to us, how he may want to, by his spirit, influence us and lead us and guide us, and talked about some very practical things that we can implement into our lives to help kind of a, a kickstart in our devotional life and really taking it a bit deeper and just receiving and hearing from God. Well, this morning I'd like to continue in a sense out of that message and share with you uh, some matters that have been stirring in my heart. Uh, it's in regard to some things I see taking place in our culture and the way that I see many Christians responding or not responding to issues. So I'd like to start back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where we've been. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're on version, you can, uh, you can turn, scroll there as well. Uh, we have all of the notes on version Live, so you can pull up all the verses right there in order, and there's a place to fill in those notes. Um, but I want to take you back to a verse that we looked at at the very beginning of our series in 1 Corinthians, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. It's a verse we've looked at a couple of times since then and referenced back to it because it's such a a key anchor point for everything that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. And it's a significant anchor point for us to remember and to, in setting our mindset and our identity and our life in Christ. Right now in our culture, there's so much about an individual's identity and what defines their identity and who they are and, and a number of things. And so I just want to remind you as a follower of Christ what Paul reminds the believers in the city of Corinth. Chapter 1, verse 2. It says, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. But he says, to the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. I want you to recognize something, and keep your Bible there for just a second. It says, to the church of God in Corinth. If you'll notice, and we talked about this before, is that their identity is who they are in God, who they are in Christ. It's not a matter of where they're living. If you look at some of other, Paul's other letters to some of the other churches, he, he starts many of them this way. And in, in to, to, to the letter of Philippians, he says, to the church of God in Philippi, to the believers in, if he, in Ephesus, he says, to the church of God in Ephesus. That it's never about you're in this community and you happen to be followers of Jesus Christ, but rather we are identified as being followers of Jesus Christ, regardless of where we find ourselves living. It's a reminder that our, anchor, our identity is always anchored in who we are in Christ. It's not what's happening in our world. It's not what ha what's happening in our nation. It's not what's happening in our community. First and foremost, you are identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. And that runs far deeper than skin color. That runs far deeper than nationality. That runs far deeper than any other label you or, the, or culture may want to put on you. First and foremost, you're identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. Everything else flows out of that. But first and foremost, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, who we are in Christ shapes how we respond to where we're at, not vice versa. Who we are in Christ shapes how we respond to where we are not at, not vice versa. Look what he says. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. He says sanctified or those who have been made holy. 
One of the, the biblical phrases, sanctified or being made holy or set apart in the Old Testament, the picture that it most often gives us, and it's in some of the, the books and the chapters that are giving a lot of details about how the temple was made or how the temple was furnished or certain groups of people who were set apart. And they were set apart and there was a process, a ritual they would go through to then be sanctified or to be holy or set apart. But once they had completed that task or that process, they were then set apart specifically for a identify, an identified purpose. If it was for the temple, it was identified and set apart specifically for the temple use, to be used in worship to God. And so it was identifying when something or someone was identified as being holy or sanctified, they were set apart from other things, they were unique, and they were different. And so he says to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, those set apart in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Again, he identifies who we are and how we're to respond. He says we are to respond reflecting the holy nature of who he is living inside of us. Then he says together with all of those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So Paul then takes it, takes what he's talking about to these specific believers living in the city of Corinth and he expands it. He says, I'm I'm saying this to you believers sitting right there in that house sitting in Corinth. He says, but it doesn't just apply to you. It applies to every single individual in that time forward who, who professes faith in Jesus Christ. He says to all those everywhere, everywhere meaning location and time, all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and ours. Not only does it tell us our behavior or it identifies our engagement, but it reminds us that in spite of what's happening around us, we're identified by who's living inside of us. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're called being his holy people. It talks about in Peter talks about this in his writings in First and Second Peter, describing us being an exile, an alien, someone who does not fit into the world's ways, the world's systems, the world's mold, the world's behaviors, the world's ideas, or the world's philosophies. The ongoing instruction that Paul gives the believers in Corinth, and then it expands to us as he reminds them. If you remember, when we talked about Corinth, we talked about it being one of the most immoral cities of the day, and really it was set apart from the rest of the culture in that they, uh, the rest of the culture was shocked at how many individuals in Corinth behaved. And so Paul begins to identify and tell these believers, he says, even though you're living in Corinth, you need to make sure that you don't have Corinth living inside of you. He says, even though you're living in a fallen culture, in a fallen world, you need to make sure that your fallen world and your fallen culture has not gotten inside of your heart nor got seeped inside of your belief system. He is not telling them to retreat or to pull back from engaging Corinth, but he is telling them to make sure that they don't allow the values and the ways of Corinth to get inside of them. And it's a reminder for you and me as a follower of Jesus Christ, in the culture we live in, in the world we live in, that whatever the culture surrounds us with, we need to make sure that it doesn't get inside of us. As I look at our world and I look at our culture and I look at all the things that seem to be going, there's so much happening and going on each and every day. Whether you're turning on the news or going to a media source or even on social media, it can change from second to second to minute to minute on something new that's breaking, new news that's, that's unfolding, situations un- unraveling in our country and in our world. It can be in the form of political unrest and tension. It can be in ongoing riots and protests and racial issues. It can be the continued impact of, a pande- of the pandemic and how we go about life and what's limiting and what's not. And it's very easy for Christians to get pulled and sucked into this whirlwind of current media and this flow of information. 
and begin to feel like in some way the Christian needs to respond and not sure how to respond or what not to respond to and responding in person or on social media and really kind of just left being uh, spinning out of this whirlwind of information and media and all these things. And while these things seem to, that are happening seem to be linked to primarily political or social issues, well, you and I cannot forget as followers of Jesus Christ, because one of the things that scriptures continually remind us of is that as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not merely a difference in a lifestyle, nor is it merely a difference in, in behavior, but rather it's a difference in our thinking, that there's a mindset shift. That there's a shift in your mindset, there's a shift in how you're going to think about things, there's a shift in how you're going to process information, that when you see a situation unfold in the world around you, that as a follower of Jesus Christ, being identified as a follower of Jesus Christ means that you can stand and see a situation unfold, and an unbeliever can stand and see the exact same situation unfold, that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to process it through a very different lens and a very different filter. That lens and that filter that we are called to think through is called a biblical worldview, bringing everything back to what Scripture says, what God declares about our world, about our culture, about everything that you and I will face. When you look in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, Paul is, is telling these believers and he's warning them that the driving force behind the world and its system and all it produces is, is he identifies it as the spirit of the air, or the, prince of, the prince of darkness, or in other places of scripture, there's a, number, another, a few other na- names for it, and we'll look at those in just a second. But in Ephesians chapter two, verse one, look what he says, verse one and two. He says, as for you, when you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. So the first part he says in verse one, he says, he says, hey, when you were away from God, when you were dead in your sins and your transgressions and you were apart from God, he says, remember, when you were apart from God, the driving force behind that, if you go back to verse two, he says the driving force behind that is following the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. I want you to see this in another translation, in the New Living Translation. Can you put that up there? The New Living Translation, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, so you were away from God, what verse two says. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. It says he is the spirit that's at work in a world that's away from God. That the Bible unveils for the follower of Jesus Christ that while we may face social issues, we may face issues in our world, places and matters and things where things are constantly shifting and changing. Paul reminds the follower of Jesus Christ is that when you look at the world, and you look at the things that are unfolding in your world around you, that you remember who you were before Jesus. But as you come to Christ, your eyes have been opened, and you recognize that this world and its system is being driven by a power of the unseen world. It's a spirit that is at work in the hearts of everyone who refuses to obey God. Elsewhere in Scripture, the name for this this spirit that's driving, where it says it's the devil, the, the influencer, he is the influencer behind the world system. And the word, the word many times that's used throughout Scripture is sometimes it talks about the spirit of the world. John talks about this in 1 John chapter 2. Elsewhere in 1 John chapter 4, he uses the phrase the spirit of the Antichrist. We've talked about this some in, in previous weeks and in previous times in this series. He's talking about the spirit of the Antichrist or the spirit of the world. Now, as, as I've said before, 
When we think Antichrist, and probably from different movies and ideas and things that we've heard over the years, many times when you and I think Antichrist, it's immediately our minds go to anti, someone who's, who is oppo- directly opposed to the things of God, someone who is directly opposed to God. They set themselves up as a complete opposite and are completely resistant to who, everything that Jesus is. But what we need to remember, while that is, actually, that is what happens, the way is not so much by way of direct opposition as much as it is by replacing. So when we think of the word antichrist, we don't need to think so much of oppose versus replace. That the enemy's intent is through the spirit of the antichrist, which is actively at work among us, now the Bible tells us this, that his goal is not so much to directly oppose the things of God as it is to replace it. It's to replace it in your thinking. It begins with a subtle shift in your mindset, a comfortable shift from what you focus on so that your mindset is no longer centered on Christ and being set apart for him. If you don't believe me, just look in Genesis chapter one and two and three and what happened with Adam and Eve. That the enemy came in, the same ruler, the spirit of the air, the driver, the influence, the influencer behind the spirit of the Antichrist, he came in with Adam and Eve's perfect relationship with God. And it says that in that perfect relationship with God, he did not come by directly opposing God, but he began by replacing God being the very center of their relationship and getting them to focus back on themselves. I want to show you something the prophet Ezekiel points out regarding the spirit of the Antichrist and understanding the influence of the enemy in our world and in our lives. Ezekiel chapter 28 Beginning in verse, I just want to read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll look at a couple more as we go. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. So Ezekiel's giving a a warning, a prophetic warning to a nation, a prophetic warning to a a leader. He says in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a mere mortal not, and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. So God uses the prophet Ezekiel to give a stern warning to a leader of a nation. He says the, the ruler of Tyre, or some translations would say the prince of Tyre. And it's very easy to translate it both ways. But what we see is it's speaking to a, to a human leader, to an individual who's leading a nation. But then I want you to see something else. There's a second part of this rebuke that has to do with the nation and the influence of Tyre and the land. And so verse 2, he says, the ruler of the prince of Tyre. Now look in verse 12. It says, son of man, take up a lament concerning the, the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And he goes on to explain and to express this rebuke against this king of Tyre. And so if you look in verse 2, it says that there's a ruler or a prince of Tyre. And then in verse 12, he's identifying the king of Tyre. And when you look at the rebuke that goes to the king of Tyre in verse 12, it it becomes very clear that he's not speaking so much of a physical individual, of a mortal man, but rather he's speaking to a spiritual being. When you begin to look at that rebuke and you begin to understand it, you'll see that he's really bringing the rebuke to Lucifer or to Satan, the one who is the slanderer of, of, the Bible says, the slanderer of the brethren. And so what we see when he's talking about the prince or the ruler of Tyre, and then he's talking about the king of Tyre, the, the, the enemy influence, the demonic influence, he's identifying the, a structure and an order. 
He's identifying that there is, there are at times, there are human leaders, human systems that become under the influence of really become demonic puppets as to how the enemy wants to work and influence your thinking. Does that make sense? So he's identifying this order and this structure that takes place, and he's identifying that, that at, there are times that individuals and leaders will become a demonic puppet being used by the enemy. Now, if you're thinking, if you're stopping and you're thinking, well, he's talking about such and such a candidate in the upcoming election, or he's talking about such and such a political party in the coming election, I would just challenge you, you're thinking way too small. You're thinking way too small to be thinking about a specific individual or a specific party. What the Bible is identifying is that the enemy brings influence into our world at times through, many times through human systems, human influencers, and individuals that can continue to sway the mindset of the believer. I want you to see specifically how what Ezekiel calls out regarding how the king of Tyre or Satan, Lucifer, works. Look with me in verse number 16. It says, Through your widespread trade you were filled with violence, and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, and from among the fiery stones. So again, identifying the angelic being that has now fallen known as Lucifer or Satan or the devil. But he says, through your widespread trade. When he speaks of trade, the word that's used here speaks of going to and fro, much like a trader would, traveling from one place to the next, bringing his goods, bearing his goods. But this word that's used for trade is often translated or closely associated with another word that's in the, in the Old Testament that's used. And I want to show you where else it's used. If you could put Leviticus up for me. Leviticus 19.16, and I'll help you connect these in just a second. He says, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. But do not go about spreading any, doing anything that spreads slander. So this word slander is closely connected to this word talking about the, the, uh, the devil going about with his trade, uh, as a trade going around. And so what it's connecting and identifying is that the enemy's trade, his craft, that he most often works confusion and he most often works into the mindset and the lives of the believer is through slander, through spreading false things, false words, false statements, false ideas, and, and begins to allow believers in this world to buy into it and to accept it. The tool slander or being a, a tale bearer is not, not so much about direct confrontation as it is a subtle and purposeful changing of your mind. If you've ever had someone go behind your back and begin to slander you, begin to put you down, or begin to be, begin to be a talebearer or, or to behave in a slanderous way against you, you'll find that most often they don't come directly to your face. Instead, they work behind you. They go to others and begin to spread little half-truths or false gossips or things behind your back. And if you were to go and confront them, they would find a gracious way to say, well, no, no, that's not exactly what I meant to say. But the, the whole work of a, a slanderer is to work behind the scenes to create opposition and to replace the idea that the individual had originally settled on. It's a powerful reminder and a picture of how the enemy works in the life of a believer. While our adversary is always predictable in his approach, is, is not always predictable in a, his approach, he is always definitive in his objective. And that is to undermine your thought life on the things of God. Our enemy, the devil, the enemy of your soul, is purposeful in trying to shape your thought life one lie at a time. That if he can get you to settle on just one lie, one distortion, 
one twist, one perversion of who God is and who you're called to be, then he's already begun to accomplish his work and he'll then move on to the next lie that he can begin to sow into your identity and sow into your mindset and sow into your perspective. So the only way a follower of Jesus Christ can recognize this and to keep our minds and our hearts willfully, is keeping our hearts and our minds willfully dependent upon the Spirit of God. If you're a parent, it is crucial to recognize how you respond to our current world and the, and the situations around us is an influencer on those children that God has entrusted to your care. That if you're allowing the enemy to sow discord and lies and confusion into your mindset, then in turn, you're modeling that for the next generation. I really believe that right now is a crucial hour for the church when it comes to your mindset and to your thinking. And so what I'd love to do is just to share with you, with that as a backdrop, I'd love to share with you four ways to safeguard your home in a fallen culture, to safeguard your heart in a fallen culture, that the enemy is constantly working to bombard you with his lies, with his agenda, with his mindset. And so we need to, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to know how to safeguard both our hearts and our homes and those who've been entrusted to our care. So the first thing that I would give you very simply is to know what God's word says. Know what God's word says. It's so easy to go off of what we hear other people say. It's so easy to go off of secondhand information, to go off of what you may hear me say or you may hear another believer say or a little snippet or a quote from a book that someone will post or another little, a little summary or a, a, a pre-digested uh, devotional that's not leading you to go deeper into God's word but just simply giving you just enough to get by. It's so easy to settle for secondhand information. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to live beyond the wisdom of this world or the wisdom of others. We are called to live first and foremost by the wisdom of God. Jesus said when he was tempted by the devil in the, in the wilderness in Matthew 4.4, Jesus said man does not live on bread alone but on the very words, present tense, the very words that come from the mouth of God. That it's a reminder that God still speaks to his followers he still speaks through his word, he still speaks through truth, and that he desires for us to be individuals who are committed and hungry to knowing the truth and the perspective of God's word. When it comes to the issues in our culture and the issues in our day and the issues in our world, our starting point must always be with what God's word says. Not what culture says, not what our feelings say, not what desires or personal orientation says, as Christians, we cannot forget that in God's eyes, prevalence nevers, never equals acceptance. That God is calling us to his standard, and his standard is unchanging, and we discover it and know it through his word. That when we encounter, I would encourage you, that as a follower of Jesus Christ, the enemy is continuing to try to sow those, those lies and that discord and that distortion into your mindset and into your understanding. That if you encounter any idea or perspective that, not, that is not consistently reinforced by God's word, then don't waste time on it. I would encourage you to set it aside and go deep into the things of God. There is no substitute for what God's word says. My mind goes to different times where different believers, different disciples are instructing uh, the church and instructing other, instructing other believers on how to respond. I think of in James, when James tells him, he says, consider it pure joy whenever you go through trials of many kinds, 
Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. That little phrase, because you know, points to prior knowledge. It points to prior investment. It points to a prior anchoring in God's word. He can't say because you know, because if they've never known it or have never been told it or never understood it. But he says, you know that when the storms and the trials and the difficulties in life come, you know that when life is going to get hard, you know that when following Christ is going to get hard, you know that when things are going to go opposite of what it means to follow Jesus. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, that it points to a prior knowledge of God's word. And so you and I must first and foremost make sure that we know what God's word says and we're staying fresh and current in what God's word says. Secondly, I would encourage you to examine your beliefs and your practices. Examine your beliefs and your practices. Your practices in your personal life, your practices in your home life, your practices in your parenting, your practices in the business, Examine your beliefs and then how those beliefs manifest themselves or don't manifest themselves in your life. The New Testament teaches for the follower of Jesus living in alignment, that living in alignment with the world's ways and value systems is not consistent with the new life that Jesus has provided for us. In Galatians 1, Paul is writing to these believers in Galatia and he says that Jesus has rescued you from the world system. He has rescued you from living under its rule, its way, its order. He says that he's rescued you, he's pulled you apart. The philosopher Aristotle once compared our challenges to in the culture we live in as a fish living in water. And he says for a fish living in water, because water is all the fish has known, the fish never even realizes or knows that it's wet. And for many of us as followers of Jesus Christ, we have lived our whole lives in a world with a sliding value system, with a changing value system, that for many believers, they don't even know they're wet. They don't even see different ways that the world's values begin to creep in, the world's systems begin to creep in and begin to shape and change their mindsets. That we've lived there for so long, we can't even see where our biblical worldviews are being set aside for the current ways and the current, the current culture and the current flow. I think a great example of this would be with Christians and the issue of homosexuality. A Christian cannot be approving of homosexuality as an acceptable practice or same-sex marriage as being okay without departing from a biblical worldview. It's a contradiction, yet many Christians don't even realize it. But I've had many conversations with individuals who are identifying themselves as followers of Jesus Christ, but yet they're approving of lifestyles that are completely inconsistent with what it means to follow Jesus Christ. That is not a biblical worldview. That is an example of being wet without realizing it, of letting the world's value system shape and change our own. I would encourage every professing Christian listening, whether you're watching online or you're sitting here in this room and listening this morning or listening via podcast in the, the days and weeks ahead, I would encourage every professing Christian to take an assessment of your life, take an assessment of your habits, take an assessment of the influencers in your life, Look at the detailed conversations you've had. Look at your internet activity. Look at your movie choices. Look at your social network posts. Look at your television habits. Look at your Spotify playlists. Look at your hobbies, your financial transactions, your thoughts, your passions, your time investments, the things that your mind sets on when no one else is around, the things that you do when no one else is around, the things that you do when no one's watching. Look at all of those things and take a quick assessment. And if you were to compare, the, compare your life with someone who was not a professing follower of Jesus Christ, would there be a noticeable difference? 
that if I wrote the list of things that were happening in my life or happening in your life in one list, and I were to do a list of what someone who does not identify with, as following Jesus Christ, and I were to make a list of those two things, and I were to remove the names on the top, would you be able to pick out which one was a follower of Jesus Christ and which one wasn't? That it's a reminder that we are called to live different and look different and, and think differently. Last week, I asked that we as a church family take a one-month leave of absence from social media. And I would encourage you to take that one month of absence. Use the month of September. It's easy to start at the beginning of a month and end at the end of the month. And for some, that one month might be your launch point. And you may need to go a lot longer. But take a one-month break. Take a one-month fast, a one-month detox from social media. And don't just get off social media. Turn off all of the other news outlets and other thought influencers in your life. Take an assessment and perhaps ask someone who knows you well, what are the thought influencers in my life? What are the things that are trying to program and tell me how to think? What, what are those avenues? What do I need to turn off? And treat it as, as a one month or more mental detox from all the different ways that the world seeks to shape and form your heart and your mind. The picture that, as I was praying over this this past week, there was a, a picture that came to mind that, that God, um, just, I feel like he just revealed it to me. And it was a picture of an individual, someone who had identified as a follower of Jesus, and they were, were running in a very tight circle. And as they were running in a very tight circle, they were grabbing at things, everything that was around them and constantly grabbing, trying to get something or trying to throw something at it. And the picture was all of these, these outlets, all of these things that are pouring into the life that we leave open, pouring into our lives as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then the need or the urge to feel like we need to respond or speak to or take in all of these different things. And the picture was of the believer standing there running in that circle was someone who in the end was exhausted, was confused, was spinning, arguing over the latest topic with no real meat or substance to their life. So I would encourage you to, to recognize how easy it is to get stuck on trivial matters of no eternal significance. That I see believers so committed to a political stance or a political party and, you know, for some of you, you're going to get to heaven and you're going to be surprised that God is not Republican you're going to be surprised that God is not Democrat, and you might be even surprised that God's not even American. But what you'll find is he is holy, and he is committed to his holy nature being formed in his people, and that begins in our mindset with things that are happening. So we commit, we spend so much time stuck on trivial and small matters of no eternal significance, things of politics, of politics, how we should or should not respond to the current pandemic we're in, all sorts of smaller things. And in the end, the only thing it does is it weakens your faith and it compromises your witness. That I have yet to hear someone, as a pastor for however many years now, I've yet to hear one person come to me and said, you know, I got into an argument with someone on social media and that led me to Christ. I've not heard it. I would encourage you to think about the testimony and the witness you set aside when you engage in those type of comments and, and, and activities. But the best thing is take the month of September, totally disconnect, get all those things unplugged out of your life and allow God to begin to reveal himself to you by not just removing those things but adding God's word. I was reminded just last night as a family, we just created some space to, to read and pray and just let God speak to us. And I was reminded of something in Revelation 22. Verse 17, it says this. So John has just recorded this, this declaration of Jesus of the final things, the end things, and what's going to happen. And he says this in Revelation 22, 17. So John's summary of what he's seeing. He says, the spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say come. 
Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. But what John is identifying is there is coming a day, there's a day that God desires where the, the Holy Spirit, he says, the Spirit and the bride say, come. That the bride is the church. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the church, the believers are so in sync with one another that they're saying the same thing. That they're drawing others to Jesus Christ to find the hope and the life they have in him. And we cannot, as followers of Jesus Christ, be in sync with his spirit and saying the same thing if we're allowing the spirit of the world to pour into us. And so take time, take inventory of those avenues and those things that are speaking into your life. As you use that month, this month to detox your mind and your heart and your home, and as I've said, for some it may need to be longer what I would encourage you to do is not just disengage from all of those avenues, but re-engage or, or even go deeper in things you're already doing that you're doing that deepen your faith. Fill, them with, fill that time with faith-building things. I would encourage you to commit to read a book or two. This past, the past few weeks, I've read a couple of books. One of them is Pride Versus Humility by Derek Prince, powerful book at di digging into the depths of our hearts and the roots of pride that we're not aware of. Other, another one I read just for recommendations is God of the Long View by David Wigington, powerful book on helping reset our perspective on time and how God works in our lives that we get so often get stuck on this one thing we want God to do, forgetting the, the bigger picture of how God works outside of time and in time and in our lives. Just a couple of books that I would strongly recommend. You read, my wife is reading a book by Philip Keller. It's really a trilogy of books. It's three of them. The shepherds look at the 23rd Psalm. A shepherd looks at the good shepherd. And the shepherd looks at the Lamb of God. And she's, uh, she's been reading this through. She's been sharing with me different little nuggets of truth that stand out. And I wanted to share this passage which she shared with me that uh, fit with what we were talking about today. And, and again, just recommendations for you to, to find a book to read, to dig into and allowing the Spirit of God to just reveal and, and deep, take you deeper in Him. But listen to what he says about this trimming away all of these, these things, detoxing our hearts. And he's talking about, in this passage that I'm going to read, it's a little bit lengthy. He says, he's, it's really, he's talking about Christians and their inability to recognize and turn a deaf ear to the wolves of our culture. Those things that would come to prey upon your faith, prey upon your mindset, prey upon uh, on other believers. He says, it reminds me of the behavior of a band of sheep under the attack from dogs, cougars, bears, or even wolves. Often in blind fear or stupid unawareness, they will stand rooted in the same spot watching their companions be cut to shreds. The predator will pounce upon, the, uh, pounce upon and then another of the flock raking and tearing them with teeth and claw. Meanwhile, the other sheep may act as if they did not even hear or recognize the carnage going on around them. It's as though they were totally oblivious to the obvious peril of their own precarious situation. We see this principle at work even among Christians. We as God's people are continually coming under attack either from without or within. Yet many are unable to detect danger among our number. It is as though we cannot hear or see or sense our peril. Often the predation is so crafty and cunning that fellow Christians are cut down before our eyes by the enemy of our souls. Sometimes those who do the most damage are already among us. They insinuate themselves into our little folds. They may be in our family, among our friends, in our neighborhood, or even in our Bible study, or even in church itself. They come bringing discord, divisions, and dissensions. They rob us of the enrichment we might have from our master by redirecting our attention to lesser issues. 
We get caught up in the conflict and confusion that can lead to chaos. Instead, our focus, instead of our focus being centered on Christ, they get us embroiled with false and destructive ideas that may eventually lead to our downfall. Almost invariably, those who come in as thieves and robbers, robbers divert our attention from the loveliness and grandeur of our good shepherd. They manage to redirect our interests to peripheral issues of minor importance. They will get us to expend our time and our energy and our thought on trivia. All the while, we are so preoccupied following their will-o'-the-wisp suggestions, we fall prey to their deceptive and destructive tactics. And then later he says, we are urged to turn a deaf ear to them. We are told to flee from them. We are told to survive, to survive we must disassociate ourselves with them. We do not, when we do not respond to those treacherous, we do not respond to those who treacherously try to tickle our ears all the while cutting our throats. But it's a reminder not to get caught up in all these small and trivial things that are all in the peripheral and rather make our energy and our focus and our passion on serving Jesus alone. Number three, third way to detox your heart and your home in a fallen culture is talk with your children regularly about what God's word says on cultural issues. Talk with your children regularly about what God's word says on cultural issues. Whether or not you like it, your kids are being taught our culture's values and our culture's ways. It doesn't matter if you're homeschooling them. It doesn't matter if you're on online charter school. It doesn't matter if in the public schools. Our, the enemy of our souls, the spirit of the world, is committed to trying to teach your children his values and his ways. He is committed to shaping their mindset. He is committed to shaping their lifestyle. The only way that you can undermine his work and his, his influence in the lives of your children is to live with an empowered mindset and lifestyle by the Spirit of God so that they experience him through you. In 1 John 4.4, 4, John is again writing to believers and he says, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. You've heard me quote that passage. It's a passage I've often said to my kids when they're facing situations or going into hard circumstances. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. To put that verse in context, that truth, that, that kingdom declaration in context, John is saying it specifically to, in, to believers to help them recognize how they counter the spirit of the Antichrist that they were facing. So it's greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Whether or not you realize it or take note of it, your beliefs and your practices are creating a subculture in your home, one that will ultimately impact and shape your kid's future. Your pattern will be their pattern. Your response will be their response. Your attitude will be their attitude. Your connection or disconnection will be their connection or disconnection. We are shaping and molding the next generation of the church, whether or not we realize it. And so we must recognize the weight that we have as parents, as influencers into the lives of our children. I want to show you one verse, Proverbs 22.6, if you can put that on screen. Proverbs 22.6 is to start a child off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Or other translations might say, train a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not turn from it. Start a child off or train a child. And we think about this as parents. If, you have, if you're a parent with a little one, if you're not, um, I just, you will, there's many things in this you can take and apply to other people in your life that God has entrusted to you to influence and to shape. 
But we read this verse, we read this, this passage, and we, we think about the, the training or the shaping of our children. And it's very easy to think, back to think back to times where you've sat and you've talked with them, the instruction you give, hands-on discipline, hands-on instruction, hands-on discipleship. But that's as, as applicable as that is. That's not what this verse is talking about. Can you put it up there one more time? Where it says, train a child in the way they should go or start a child off on the way they should go. It's speaking to a practice and a habit that the Hebrew midwives would often have with a newborn baby. And with a newborn baby, when the baby was first born, the Hebrew midwives would take their finger and they would dip it into a little bit of olive oil and they would begin to rub it on the baby's lips. And as they would begin to rub it on the baby's lips, they were, they were training the baby to then to suck and, and teaching them the importance of nursing. And so they were training that, that baby to then to suck and to have the desire to suck. And so what the, the verse literally is saying is create a taste for the things of God in the heart of your children, and when they are old, nothing else will satisfy them like, the, like God can. We live in a world, and our own lives are an example of this, that our human heart has a tendency to wander and will constantly need reminding of the truth of God's word and the truth of who he is. That as a parent, if you are continually talking about God's word, continually reminding ourselves of God's word, centering our homes on God's word, we're creating a culture. We're creating a space where our kids are being exposed and trained into the things of God. I really believe to succeed by worldly standards and to fail to raise godly children is to fail in the worst way possible. We are called to raise up men and women of God and we don't wait until they're teen years to make them men and women of God. It begins the minute they enter your arms, the minute they enter your life, that you're called to raise up strong men and women of God who can stand against the culture, stand against its values, and recognize the authentic presence of God against the counterfeit that the enemy will throw at them time and again. One of the things that we have done in our home from a very early age with our kids, and I remember, I remember what it was like to have little ones and I remember just the challenge of keeping them still and keeping them settled. But what Teresa and I began to do, and, and it's something we still try to hold to the, as best as possible in our home, there's certain rhythms that change what happens, but we we're able just to do it last night, is we create space, usually on a Saturday evening. We create space, and we grab our Bibles. We tell our kids, grab your Bible, and we just create space, and we spend 30, 45 minutes an hour reading and praying and worship, and then just share what God's speaking into our hearts. It might be a story. It might be a passage. It might be something that stands out. When our kids were little, when our kids were, were tiny, uh, even to the point where they couldn't read yet, we would create that space, and then we would invite them to grab a coloring book, uh, to grab a picture book, to grab, if we had something from, from church, they would use that, but many times it was something, it might have been Blue's Clues or something like that. Um, and, and we would have them just read and be there, but two things they were experiencing. Number one, they were seeing mom and dad create, uh, create the importance of time with God in their mindset. They were seeing it modeled in front of them. And then the second thing that they would do is they were encountering the presence of God even when they didn't realize it. We were training them the importance of being in the presence of God even when they couldn't recognize it. That's why I value, and parents, thank you for being willing to come and, and to, to wrestle with having a kid sitting in your lap. I realize the challenge of that and the, the benefit and the gift we have through SCA Kids Ministries. But there is something special about having your kids sitting with you in, class, in, in service, having, them chasing, having to chase them down. I've had times when I'm preaching and the kid will run all the way across the front and he's got some wheels on him. He's moving. The mom's like panic. But he's in the presence of God. 
I would rather take a fussy child sitting in this room than a parent who will stay at home because they're afraid that their child will fuss. Because I want them to experience the reality of the presence of God as we're gathered together, worshiping him and, and, and experiencing him. And from our early years with our children, we have seen each one grow in their own walk with Christ. And today, by the grace of God, each one of our kids are loving and serving Christ with their hearts and with their lives. So I encourage you as a parent, embrace the responsibility God has given you of shaping and molding the hearts and the minds of your children to, to fall in love deeply with Jesus. Something that we have done with our kids, and, and maybe this is more than you're looking for, and as a parent, if you need more guidance, I'll help you after this, but something we've encouraged them to do, and if you have issue with this, then don't tell me about it. Um, but they, we have, we have often, we've told them, just start in the New Testament and spend time in the New Testament, spend time falling in love with Jesus. There are rich stories in the Old Testament, and I love and value the Old Testament stories, and, and there's much history that points to Jesus, but to start someone out in learning to know Jesus, I don't want them to start in Leviticus, I don't want them to start learning how to build the furnishings of the temple or to shape an altar. I want them to start by encountering the person and presence of Jesus Christ. And the more they're encountering, encountering Jesus through his word and the spirit is changing and shaping and transforming their minds, then in conversation, we'll then say, well, you, what you're sharing and talking about connects to this story in the Old Testament. And then we'll help them connect that to that. And there's a point where they begin to read through some of the Old Testament or, or letting God's word speak to them. But we lead them to a place. We tell them the, the Bible is a book like no other. And we help them find a place to start. We don't just say, here you go, read the Bible. But we, we lead them to a place to encounter Jesus. Lead your children to a place to encounter Jesus again and again. And then, friends, the last thing, I would encourage you, especially online, if you just bear with me for a few more minutes, the last thing to safeguard your heart and your home in a fallen culture is to determine, determine to engage others with biblical love and compassion. Determine to engage others with biblical love and compassion. The way we stay fresh in the things of God and the Spirit of God is staying in tune to the Holy Spirit and how he's speaking and leading. And he will always lead us to engage others around us. A sure sign of spiritual stagnation in our lives is a lack of concern for those without Christ. The Holy Spirit will always lead and prompt us to engage the world around us with the person and presence of Jesus living inside of us. In John 17, Jesus is talking with his disciples and he's talking uh, really in kind of a final, a final time with them. He's talking and he's praying. And when you read this in John 17, you connect it with some of the other chapters you'll see. And if you have the red letter translation showing where, what Jesus says, you can just go back to where red began and you'll see a very lengthy time of prayer, discussion, topic Jesus is having with him. It's right in a time where he's having a final meal before Jesus then goes to the garden, is arrested and then tried and crucified, dying on the cross. But in this prayer, Jesus is praying. He's praying for his disciples, and then he's praying for the future generation of disciples. And he says this in verse 15. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent you into the world. For them I, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Three things Jesus prays for, at least three things Jesus prays for his disciples. First, he prays for protection. He says it in verse 
15, he says, I, I pray, God, that you don't take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. You protect them from the spirit of the world, the spirit of the age. So he prays for protection. Second thing he prays for is holiness, being set apart, being sanctified. That's something we talked about earlier. And then the third thing he prays is a prayer of engagement. He prays a prayer of engagement. He says, I, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. That he's not praying for his believers to then build a fort, to retreat, to hide, to disengage from the world because they're afraid of all that the world may offer. They're afraid of how the enemy may come against them. They're afraid of the spirit of the Antichrist and the spirit of the world. No, Jesus says, God, protect them, make them holy, and then send them out. That he prays a prayer of engagement for his church and for his followers. He did not want them nor envision a church that would live in isolation or withdrawn from the world around them. His prayer request is for those disciples then, and it's a prayer for us as disciples now. And friends, with all that is going on in our nation, I really believe that now is a time more than ever that people need to hear and experience the hope that you and I have in Jesus Christ. Now is a time more than ever that we need to let his presence manifest through our lives. Now more than ever, we live in a world that needs to encounter someone who is living and, and thinking and shaping and being led by the Spirit of God in a world that we live. And at the same time, my concern I do see as a pastor is I see a number of churches continuing to remain closed and believers continuing to stay disengaged and arguing over trivial matters. You know, as, your, as your pastor, if I can just share with you a concerning trend that I've, I've shared this with the elders, I've shared it with the pastors, and I share it with you. As I see people re-engaging in almost every area of their life, but not in their faith community. And in our day and age, that is concerning. In all that I've just shared, that is very concerning. You know, I realize, for those watching at home, um, I, don't, I, I realize that there's a number of individuals who have genuine health issues, compromised immune systems in different places, uh, in, in this, and that distancing is understood and expected. I know we have a number of individuals who work in the medical profession, uh, and they're just continually dealing with and exposed to individuals in different stages of sickness, so I get that, and I understand that. But what I would encourage you, for those maybe you're watching, or you're watching this later at a different point, or even you're here for the first time, and you're not sure if you're gonna be back for another time, I would press you to evaluate the why behind you're not being reengaged in your church family. What I do see, and what I'm concerned with, is a casualness that has crept into many Christians' faith. That I see that it's easier to choose, to choose convenience over genuine relationship. For someone who has been isolated and socially distanced for a number of months and in digital relationships for so long, coming back to live service can feel awkward and even unnatural. It can feel very different, like it's a, a new step, it's a, it's a fresh step. But I would, I would just press you to consider this as your pastor is that if this is as good as it gets regarding COVID-19 for the next year or even the next two years, what is your plan or your timeline to re-engage with your church family? Because we were not designed for digital relationship. We were not designed for disconnect. We were designed to be together, to stand together, to serve together. And when you look, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when Paul is giving believers the, the warning about the things they're introducing into the church, he gives them this warning, but it, it sets forth a principle that you and I can remember in what we just experienced this morning. He says, is, don't you know that when you gather, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, don't you know that when you gather, the Spirit of God dwells in your midst? You know, I love, I love worship. 
I constantly have worship on at home. Uh, we constantly have it on. I'm listening to it in my car. Um, even in my office beforehand, I, I spend some time in prayer. I have worship on. I have different ones who come and just we meet together and we pray. As much as I love pre-recorded worship and I'll never eliminate it from my life, there is something that happens when we gather together, we lift our voices, we lift our hearts, and we do what we were created to do, to worship the King of Kings, to worship the eternal God, the creator of the universe, the one who paid the full price for you and me to be in right relationship with him. When we come together and we acknowledge that purpose, we acknowledge that, that, that reason of what God has done, there's something unique that happens when we're gathered together. I truly believe that the most effective step forward for us as a church in representing Christ in our decaying culture is getting a fresh understanding of who he is, his presence, his love, his passion for you, and having that encounter that then in turn propels you out into impacting our community and impacting our world.